And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie along with Max Bennett. Matt, let's talk a little bit about ChatGPT. It stands for Chat Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. Now, what the heck does that mean? (laughs) So uh, a transformer is just a very specific uh, um, architecture for a neural network. Um, And so conceptually, you can just think about it as a big web of artificial neurons, meaning they're not real neurons, they're just modeled in a computer. Um, And what we do is we uh, show a set of text to this model and we ask it to predict the next word. So let's say we give it a paragraph and we say, hey, can you predict the next word in this paragraph? Or we'll remove a word in a paragraph and say, can you guess what word should have been there? And we just take that sort of learning algorithm and then we show it the entire internet or a huge portion of the internet. And what's very interesting is it starts being able to produce language and reason about things in ways that are oddly human-like and are impressively intelligent. Now, we've had neural networks and language models for a long time. What's unique about the transformer is it uses something called attention, which is just a clever way for each individual sort of word to try and take part in predicting what the next word is in a set. But you can just think about it as a really big neural network that we just pass a lot of text to so it can try and predict the next word. Is it literally writing speeches and things like that now? Oh, yeah. I mean, people are using this for speech generation. A surprisingly large portion of new content on the Internet is now written by ChatGPT. Uh, A lot of students are starting to use ChatGPT to write essays. Um, Lawyers are starting to use it. Yeah, there's a lot of use. And doctors are using it for medical diagnosis, too, isn't it? So um, there's a lot of work going on uh, for trying to use large language models and medical use cases. Um, and ChatGPT in particular is, is not always the, it's not necessarily the best one to use. Google's working on its own specialized model for medical use cases. Um, but yeah, there are some really interesting stories. Uh, there's one story of someone who took their dog to a vet um, and uh, the vet thought it was condition A. Um, so then they went home, but the dog wasn't getting better. And so then he went to ChatGPT and it said, well, there's three possibilities. Um, ChatGPT guessed the first one the doctor did, but if it's not this, it must be these other two. And one of them was actually really dangerous and needed urgent care. So he went back to the vet and actually saved the dog's life. Um, that so that's nice. one of the like success stories where it democratized access to information. There's also examples where people have used ChatGPT, lawyers have used it in legal uh, briefs uh, or in in the law, and it turned out that ChatGPT just entirely made up uh, cases. Uh, oh. and that lawyer actually got uh, got in big trouble for doing that. <laughs> does does it so lie, Max? Does it lie? It, it definitely lies. It so does lie. Wow. Yes. So the problem is when you just give it uh, the whole internet to read, and it and then you give it a novel set of sentences, it does its best to predict what it thinks is next in that sentence, but it gets things wrong a lot. You know, it, it, it doesn't always know what the actual truth is. Um, and the problem with these large language models is because it doesn't have breakthrough three, um, the ability to sort of pause and think about. And reason. And, um, and have yeah. this inner, exactly, this inner world model that exists in mammals. It can't actually pause and say, actually, I don't know the answer to that question, or it doesn't do as good a job as a human would. So it just tries to answer pretty much every question you give it. Um, which leads it to 
what what in the AI community is called hallucinating, or to your point, just lie or say the wrong thing, um, does, which is a dangerous, dangerous thing. Does it deceive on purpose? No, 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 no. Well, I think to deceive on purpose would suggest that there's some intent uh, to trick people for some ulterior motive. Yeah, I mean, which, to me, that's uh, that's a lie. If it deceives yeah. on purpose, that's a lie. If it deceives yeah. because it doesn't know any better, that's a different issue. Yeah, I would say then it does not lie in that sense. Now, will it ever get to a point where it's like Hal from the movie you know, 2001 where it reasons and lies and manipulates and does all kinds of things? Um, I don't think large language models as they stand today um, would produce a uh, sort of entity like Hal where they have their own goals, um, its own sense of self, um, and its own nefarious objectives. Yeah, their own agenda, yeah. Yeah. I don't think at least the transformer models themselves will do that. Um, I, there's so much money going into uh, AI right now that, you know, if you fast forward two decades, you know, will we have the ability to produce something like that? I think it's hard to argue the answer is no. Um, I think it's likely we'll have something more like that. Um, but it's, uh, but I don't think large language models out of the box are going to produce it. I think there's bigger risks, though, which is, you know, Nick Bostrom, his famous um, – a uh, philosopher has uh, an allegory called the paperclip problem, which I think is really instructive, where he says, let's imagine a world where we have these super intelligent AIs and we ask one of them to run a paperclip factory for us. And we just talk to this AI and we say, hey, I have a goal. Can you just maximize the production of paperclips because we're kind of running out and I just need more of them? And then the AI says, sure. And then it converts all of Earth into paperclips. <laughs> And what's the point of that allegory? The point is that the AI didn't have to be intentionally nefarious. It didn't have to want to hurt anyone for it to be dangerous because it just misunderstood what you meant by maximized right. production. It did, what you, it did what you told it to do. Exactly. And so this is where Breakthrough 4 comes in, which is what uh, primates are really good at, which is when if I asked a human running uh, a paperclip factory, maximize the production of paperclips, they could think about me and reason about my own mind, they could put themselves in my shoes and immediately know I do not want them to convert Earth into paperclips. Um, and that is constantly happening when we use language with each other. We're inferring what, what we mean by what we say. Um, and one of the big dangers of rolling out these AI systems too broadly too soon is we could have paperclip dilemma-like problems where they just misunderstand what we mean by the instructions we give it. Absolutely. Let's go to the phone. Cy in Mississippi to get us started on the wild card line. Hey, Cy, go ahead. Uh, yes, sir. I, I very much appreciate you taking my phone call. Uh, Thank you. I one of the rare experiences I'm actually uh, doing what I'm actually calling about. And this may be below your research, and I apologize if it is. But um, I, I own a bit of land here in Mississippi, and I'm an avid hunter, but I, I don't hunt uh, with rifles. I, I hunt a lot simpler than that, bows and and tomahawks. And I there was a research done for about 40 years with white-tailed deer uh, in North America where uh, since they don't really have any sort of predators other than man in this area, their communication between each other is, is quite interesting if you've ever actually uh, researched it before. Uh, the, the interaction between the deer uh, warning each other of predators, which normally is man, uh, has 
decreased over the past, say, 20 to 30 years because of the technology of hunting. But most hunters with high-powered rifles, and they sit in trees, and they put out bait and so forth. And so uh, I myself would go out in the woods, which I'm doing right now, and I, and I actually track deer, do the markings they put on trees and such. Uh, I have found, personally, that their communication with each other, with a predator in the area, seems to uh, almost elevate a bit when they feel that someone, such as myself, that is not uh, sitting in a tree with a high-powered rifle, um, is, it, it's almost as if their language between themselves becomes uh, almost supersonic when normally, uh, as I said before, it, it's almost just become null and void because they just don't have that type of challenge especially in North America and, and Mississippi. We don't exactly have cougars and cheetahs and such. And I was really, and I apologize if this is off the subject of what you studied, but I was just wondering if you've ever looked into the actual language between animals and uh, such as white-tailed deer and, and if it's whether it's progressed or uh, digressed uh, with the um, technology getting better and better with hunters. Uh, I don't include myself in that. I, I, I just don't hunt with rifles. And I was just really wanting to, Hear your thoughts on that, and, I, and again, I apologize if that's not if that's sort of below um, your uh, schooling and your research and such. So I haven't um, specifically studied uh, deer communication, but um, it's certainly the case that uh, animals' response to uh, in different changes in environmental uh, pressures. I mean, even humans. I think a, a great example in humans is our eyes have been degrading. Um, why? Because now that we've invented glasses, um, degraded eyesight isn't a death sentence anymore. And so immediately, something that evolution really enforced heavily, which is humans need really great eyesight, is degrading immediately over hundreds of years, um, which is a pretty rapid uh, observation in evolution. So it certainly is possible um, that, uh, you know, uh, with changing pressures, their ability to communicate uh, has uh, changed. And we know lots of animals um, especially uh, ones that are lower on the food chain, like uh, or ones that are often prey, like a deer, um, do have lots of signals that they give each other, um, and very specific signals. So I don't know if deer do in particular, but um, I have studied uh, monkeys a lot, um, and monkeys have lots of signals they give each other. So I was mentioning earlier, vervet monkeys um, have genetically hard-coded signals that are, they have for different types of predators. So there's a very specific signal they give that means snake, and if you play that from a loudspeaker, you can record a vervet monkey and just play that sound in a loudspeaker, all the monkeys run into the trees. Um, and there's a different signal, which means hawk. Um, and if you play that, all the vervet monkeys jump from the trees down to the forest floor. So there's clearly signaling happening. Um, so it's certainly possible it's happening in deers, but I'm, I'm no uh, deer communication expert. West of the Rockies, John's with us in Mendocino, California. Welcome, John. Hey, thanks for having me on. And... Um... Just wanted to uh, what you think about um, uh, our brains being sort of a quantum um, computing, and what do you think about quantum computers uh, that are coming up, uh, marriage with AI? Mm. So I don't think there's good evidence, or I am not aware of any good evidence, that uh, the core computations from which human cognition and intelligence emerges uh, leverage any real meaningful quantum effects. Um, it is the case that, you know, most, most theories think that the core information signaling that occurs in the brain 
is through uh, electrical spikes, which is where a neuron depolarizes, and there are these tiny little like Morse code-like spikes called action potentials. Um, and neurons pass when when they have an action potential, uh, they pass that signal down an axon, um, and this axon connects to a bunch of other neurons. And when an a when a axon activates, it releases a bunch of chemicals that then triggers cascading effects to other neurons. So um, I'm sure there are ideas about maybe on a deeper a molecular level, if there are possibly quantum effects, but I haven't seen convincing evidence uh, that quantum effects are really meaningful in the computations happening in the brain. Um, in terms of quantum computers, I mean... Uh, and explain what a computer. quantum computer is, Max. So I'm not an expert in quantum computers, so I don't want to uh, get over my skis on it, but the high-level okay. idea that I can, I can speak to is all computers are based on uh, a transistor um, which is effectively a binary signal. So computer code is all ones and zeros. And uh, that imposes big limitations on how much a computer can compute because it only has two different uh, informational values, one or a zero. And quantum computers um, leverage quantum states, which means they can have more than two um, values, um, which opens the door for huge numbers of increases in computational ability um, and so that's sort of the extent to my knowledge of quantum computing. Um, and there's a lot of concern and excitement around it because it could suggest that for the same amount of energy input, we could get way more complicated algorithms run on quantum computers, et cetera. Uh, but that's a core idea. Next up, Sharon's with us in New Jersey. Hello, Sharon. Go ahead. Hi, George. Hi, Max. Thank you so much. I'm really enjoying this. Thank you. Okay. My question is... Um, so if the AI mimics the neural networks in our brain and we have devices, like can't the AI merge with us and don't we like not need a sky network to kind of create a zombie apocalypse? Zombie apocalypse time with AI. What do you think, Max? <laughs> when you say merge with us, what do you mean? AI will like affect me personally, like how I read a sentence. Um, and so when I when it affects me and like how I communicate with others, and then but also to its ability through neuroplasticity to affect our HPA axis, like through the digital products we have on our phones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So um, it's an interesting point. Like, uh, um, you know, Elon Musk has a an idea where he says we already have brain computer interfaces. We're already cyborgs. Um, and yeah. the interface is just the phone. Um, and we use the phone as an extension of our brain because uh, we're constantly using it to get information. Um, and it's a relatively low bandwidth because it's not talking directly to our brain. It's going through our fingers and our eyes. Um, and I think that's actually a, a reasonable uh, sort of metaphor for what the technology is doing. And when you think about it that way, I think your point is, is not totally off base where, um, yes, when you're scrolling through a Facebook feed and it, it shows you things that trigger dopamine release to the to breakthrough too, um, and that reinforces your behavior and makes you feel uh, compelled to keep scrolling, um, that is in some ways manipulating your brain uh, without your consent. Um, and it can trigger you into a state of stress, um, which, and when you're in a state of stress, you become more habitual, which means you're more uh, at risk of getting uh, addicted to things, um, to your point about the HPA access. So, uh, so yeah, um, I think there, that is already happening. 
uh, in some sense, uh, because the underlying algorithm of Facebook is machine learning, and that is manipulating people. So I think that is a concern. Max, do you think if uh, Albert Einstein had the ability to use artificial intelligence, he would have come up with even some more astounding theories? That's an interesting question. Um, yeah. I mean, I think ChatGPT, uh, in its best, in the best case, scenario is a really amazing thought partner. Um, and uh, when you talk to it, it can help you think about ideas you haven't considered. Um, when implemented correctly, it can crawl across a mass corpus of scientific literature and help draw connections between things for you. Um, so yeah, if Einstein had access to the internet even before you imagine even AI systems, um, how much more could Einstein have done if he didn't have to go to the, the library um, to read books, he could have just had access to Wikipedia. So I think it's reasonable uh, to, to say that. Now, at the same time, um, what would happen, you know, back then, people's attention spans were much longer, right? So Albert right. Einstein would also have grown up in a world where uh, there was Facebook all around and uh, attention spans are declining and all that. So you also have to, you know, consider both of those effects at the same time. But I think it's a reasonable case that uh, he would reap much benefit from the Internet and AI systems. Where do people get the book, A Brief History of Intelligence? Uh, it should be available anywhere. Uh, on Amazon, you can buy it. Um, local bookstores should be available. Um, but, yeah, it should be all over the place. A lot of people seem to be depressed these days because of events that are happening worldwide. Will artificial intelligence help them or hurt them? Um, I think with most really powerful technologies, it's a tool. Um, and it's up to the humans that wield that tool, whether or not it does good things or bad things. Um, so I think there, uh, there's a possible future that's really good uh, with, with AI systems. I mean, uh, an AI system uh, that's done right for medical use cases can really democratize access to incredible medical care. I mean, you know, if anyone has a loved one that's had cancer, I mean, how desperately you want to get into Sloan Kettering or one of the best cancer centers. Exactly. Because the quantity of the best doctors is not high enough to actually meet the need of everyone who needs them. Um, and so imagine AI systems that can democratize access to that level of care to anyone. Max, we're going to take a short break here and then come back and take final calls with you in a moment on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back. We're with Max Bennett. We'll take your final calls as we talk about the brain and artificial intelligence. His book is called A Brief History of Intelligence, Evolution, AI, and the Five Breakthroughs That Made Our Brains. Max, tell me a little bit about your company, Albi. Yeah, so we're a um, very small early company, um, and we're experimenting with using some of the technology underlying ChatGPT uh, in shopping use cases. Um, so uh, you know, when people are trying to figure out whether to buy a uh, new ski and what the type of ski they should buy, um, we're trying to build AI systems that make it easier for them to make product decisions. Um, and the high-level goal is to get people to not have to spend as much time shopping online uh, and effectively to have a personal shopper do that stuff for them. Is this something that Amazon would love to welcome you with? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think Amazon's probably building their own version of this. Um, our goal is to empower everyone who's not Amazon, so all the smaller folks, uh, give them 
uh, similar technology. All right, let's go to final calls east of the Rockies. Joe's with us in Long Island, New York. Hey, Joseph, go ahead. Hi, Max. I have two related questions, uh, both of which I also want to, on top of my questions, is is dopamine going to give you a false reading? Like if you if you're skiing and you get a dopamine rush, that means you like skiing. But is that always the case? But my first question, both derived from thinking fast and slow, is this idea where he's the author says in that book that uh, we're mo- we're mostly in system one automatic thinking, and some of that involves anchoring that we don't even know we're uh, doing, where we're hearing something and we kind of anchor in on what we're hearing. Or, for example, uh, I I think of myself, I lost uh, some races swimming, you know, just informal races when I was young, and I've never considered myself a good swimmer since, even though I've gotten complimented on my swimming. So I anchored in on that. you know, and how that relates to maybe the brain, that tendency to anchor in either on animal behavior or human behavior with events or just something you hear, and and could that be exploited by AI? My second question is uh, heuristic or shortcut thinking being exacerbated by AI where we tend to just use quick uh, rules of thumb or intuition uh, in our thinking and don't do that deliberative system tooth type thinking where we're looking more into why we're doing things. An example might be in China, like they're using this, uh, uh, where they're tracking people with with the uh, AI uh, pictures or whatever, and they might say, well, someone was at a gathering uh, that might have been a protest, but they might have just been passerbys, or they might be there because they're attracted to a girl and want to talk to the girl. Or they're taking out a book, and this means that on their social credit score with a backstory is that they actually want to see what the opposing point of view is. Or, for example, last example would be, uh, say, you know, a teacher accusing someone of using uh, chat uh, GPT in a paper, but there is the backstory of students have been cheating on papers, passing them around or buying them. And, you know, the AI is maybe just exacerbating what's already there. Mm-hmm. Comment with what you want, uh, Max. So, uh, so one thing uh, that I love that you brought up is, um, so when thinking fast and slow, uh, the idea, so Daniel Kahneman uh, wrote that book, um, and the idea is that in human brains, there are two general forms of thinking. One is fast thinking, where we make automatic responses, and the other is slow thinking, where we pause uh, and consider our choices. And that maps almost exactly to this five and it's something that we talk about in AI, where when I was talking about reinforcement learning early vertebrates, that effectively is the system one fast thinking. Um, this is this immediate response to uh, a stimulus. And what evolved in early mammals is the ability to pause and think about things before we make choices. Um, and so, uh, you know, when you talk about like, can AI manipulate those things? Um, AI is already manipulating those things. So when you feel addicted to scrolling on Facebook, 
um, the dopamine hit of uh, sort of a surprising next item in the feed um, is exactly reinforcing the automatic response, uh, the, re the reinforcement learning component, the fast thinking component of your brain. Um, and that makes it harder to stop because it sort of hijacks the automatic response component. So, so uh, I think there is an analogy uh, there. I think, uh, you know, there are, of course, uh, ways in which AI systems can hack the sort of fast thinking. Um, I think one thing missing in AI systems is the slow thinking, which is so interesting, where even ChatGPT, if you want to analogize it to Daniel Kahneman's framework, um, is all fast thinking. It never pauses to think about things beforehand, which is something missing. Um, to your thing on shortcut thinking, um, there's some interesting uh, things there. So the representative heuristic, which Daniel Kahneman talks about, where uh, you say the following, um, you know, imagine, let's say, Eric. I tell you about Eric, and I say, Eric is meek. Uh, he wears glasses, uh, and he loves slow music. Is he more likely to be a construction worker or a librarian? Um, and most people would say librarian, um, um, but that would be wrong because there are like something like, you know, 30 times more construction workers uh, than there are librarians, even though a higher percentage of librarians are, quote unquote, meek in the example. I don't know if that's true. Um, if only 5% of construction workers are meek, there's actually going to be more meek construction workers. This is the exact example that Daniel Kahneman uses. The representative heuristic comes from the fact that we reason about things by simulating. It's a cause of, of, of uh, our pause. We imagine Eric being meek with glasses, and he seems more like uh, a librarian than a construction worker. So this, like the simulation, the slow thinking, quote unquote, also has its own uh, its own challenges as well, uh, where we can have flaws in, in thinking too. So, um, yeah, that's just some thoughts on on your questions. Norman St. Louis. Hey, Norm, go ahead. Hey, how you guys doing tonight? Okay, Normie, thank you. Good. Uh, yeah couple points uh, on the uh, advancement of, you know, man and to AI and whatnot and evolution is, uh, I've often taught this over the years, this is kind of odd to me that uh, there's 10 million different species in the world and uh, we're the only one, although we're the apex of God's creation, we're the only one that pays fees to live and breathe. <laughs> and uh, second hmm. If you advance to the, you know, today, you know, there's a big mass shooting tonight, I forget where it was, but uh, like 50 people shot, and uh, we got, you know, the Israel-Palestine deal, and we got, uh, uh, I was reading about uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, you know, and they got super hypersonic things that Russia can hit the U.S. in 30 minutes now would, would go uh, Mach 5. Uh, well, we've got the same stuff too, Norm. Don't forget. Uh, you're breaking up a little bit on the phone, but did you get the gist of what he was saying, Max? Uh, I, didn't, I didn't fully grasp the question. If you want to repeat it for me, that would be helpful. I don't think we got to the question stage yet. That's okay. Let's go to Bill in Los Angeles. Go ahead, Bill. Uh, hey, George. Hey, George, maybe you heard of, about three or four months ago, somebody did a, a chat GPT of Ronald Reagan doing a Kamala Harris speech. And I woke up and I didn't know what was going on. I just turned the radio on and I thought it was Ronald Reagan. And I thought, no, he never said anything that stupid. And then they informed everybody, oh, yeah, this is chat GPT. 
Did you catch that? I did. I did. It's really it's incredibly dangerous sometimes. Yeah. And uh, uh, but um, in a, in a slightly re- related question, Max, um, I've been grappling with this ever since being a philosophy student back in the in the 70s with uh, materialistic determinism. And you mentioned this guy, Robert Sapolsky. And I just wonder if you're familiar with the argument uh, made by Sir Karl Popper in his book, Objective Knowledge, and ironically, also by C.S. Lewis from the other end of the spectrum, that uh, if all thoughts are causes, then we have no reason to believe that anything we think is true, including the statement that materialistic determinism is true. What do you think about that? You you cut out like halfway through. Can you repeat the last part of your sen- your question? Uh, yeah, there, if if uh, if uh, materialistic determinism is what uh, is is actually real, then we have no reason to believe any of our thoughts are really true because we're just being programmed by molecular reactions to think what we think. Well, um, I mean, I'm not familiar with that argument, but the just because it's predetermined by uh, things going on at a molecular level, I don't see why that would mean it's not true. Um, I could program a computer uh, without it having any free will of its own, and it would be fully material, uh, be fully abiding by material determinism, um, but I could give it information that would still be true. Um, and uh, So I'm not, unless I'm not fully grasping the, the argument, I don't see why uh, the fact that things are determined and based in only material aspects of reality, uh, we're unable to uh, hold true beliefs. If you were playing poker with the chat GBT, would you be all in with this artificial intelligence, Max? <laughs> um, when you say all in, you mean would I start rolling it out to vast parts of society and using it for all these different applications? Yep. Yeah, I don't think we're... You know, I, I'm very, I'm in general a techno optimist. I think uh, there are really great. The world can be much better if we do things right. Um, and but I do think we need to be thoughtful about how we roll these things out. I do not think it's a good idea to just start wholesale rolling out ChatGPT in a variety of different uh, ways without being more thoughtful about where is it safe to do so. Make sure we have the right guardrails in place. Um, and I think even. The leadership of OpenAI and Microsoft agree with that. I think, you know, uh, there's plenty to critique there, but I think in general they philosophically are aligned with the idea that we want to roll this out in safe ways. Um, Satya Nadella of Microsoft, you know, he's already said that he wants to really focus on use cases where the human's always in control. So it's only giving guidance to a person, but it's never replacing a person. Um, So I think there are good ideas on how to roll it out safely. Um, so on the idea of going all in, uh, no, I would not go all in. I would put a few chips on the table and see how it goes. That's interesting. Sean in Stockton, California, welcome to the show. Get you in here, Sean. Go ahead. Oh, thank you, George. Yeah, Max, um, I find a mysterious part of evolution is the, uh, from primate to man. You still have the primate culture. So is there a species of primate that had the advanced intelligence or capability to evolve into modern man? Thank you. Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, you, it would be impossible uh, to make the argument that, uh, you know, the ancestors of humans that separated from the chimpanzee lineage, you know, seven million years ago uh, could become man, but any other lineage of primates unable to do so. I think that would be an untenable argument. Um, what that means then 
is really any uh, existing primate probably also, if given the right circumstances, could also evolve to have the intelligence uh, of, of a human. And it's probably not only with primates. I mean, if you look at dolphins, dolphins are incredibly uh, intelligent. Uh, if given the right circumstances and environments, I think it's not unreasonable to believe they could similarly evolve um, into the intelligence of a human. Uh, it's all about finding the right feedback loops and evolutionary pressures that would drive the selection uh, for uh, traits that would push them in the direction of uh, of human-like intelligence. I've always thought, Max, that if dolphins had arms and fingers instead of little flippers, they could do some incredible things. That's true, yes. Yeah, I think it's interesting to, to think about the accidents of evolution where, you know, uh, dolphins were, you know, have the same mammal ancestors as us. The ancestors of dolphins and whales were that same squirrel-like mammal 100 million years ago. Um, but they were the lineage that went back into the sea and their their fingers uh, turned back into fins. Um, and so uh, the fact that, you know, our answers were chimpanzees who were climbing, or not chimpanzees, but early primates, we're climbing in trees, we evolved opposable thumbs, uh, which didn't evolve for tool use. It evolved for hanging onto tree branches. Uh, we only later repurposed it for, for uh, tool use. So there's lots of really fascinating accidents of evolution where things evolved for one reason and then were just repurposed uh, for other ones. Exactly. Max, thanks for being on the program. Keep in touch and good luck with the book, A Brief History of Intelligence. Thank you. My pleasure. We're going to come back in just a moment on Coast to Coast to talk about an alien abduction case that went very, very wrong. We'll continue following and monitoring that tragedy in Lewiston, Maine, where 22 people were shot to death, 330 to 60 others wounded.